Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. David Crosby enthusiasts and fans of creative, innovative, mind-expanding, and heart-healing music. And welcome back to Freak Flag Flying, to the second half of my deep, deep, deep dive with Cros into the stories and sagas behind the creation of his luminous masterpiece, If I Could Only Remember My Name, an album trashed by mainstream rock critics upon its release 50 years ago, but now recognized as nothing less than one of the most singularly beautiful pop recordings of the late 20th century, hailed as the progenitor of freak folk by hipster media outlets like Mojo and Pitchfork, and chosen as one of the top 10 pop music recordings of all time by the former Pope Benedict. Google it. With influences echoing through a generation of younger musicians' work, from Sufjan Stevens and Devondra Banhart, to those who only heard the album after teaming up with David to spark his full-fledged creative renaissance on recent records like Sky Trails and Hear If You Listen, like singer-songwriters Michelle Willis and Becca Stevens. We'll be listening to some bonus tracks from the new 50th anniversary edition of If I Could Only Remember My Name, just released by Rhino Records, like the alternate mix of Cowboy Movie we were just hearing, with incendiary additional leads by Neil Young. 
we'll also hear some even rarer music that didn't make the final cut for the new edition, despite my best attempts. In our last episode, Grateful Dead bass player Phil Lesh called If I Could Only Remember My Name the culmination of everything that was happening musically in the 60s. In a way, it was the culmination of all of that that happened during the 60s musically. A total collaboration between David and kindred spirits like Jerry Garcia, Yorma Kakonan, Jack Cassidy, Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, and Neil Young. The cream of the crop of turned-on, tuned-in, Bay Area psychedelicized folk musicians. In a couple of minutes, we'll rejoin David at the San Francisco studio where most of the album was recorded to talk in depth about the making of If I Could Only Remember My Name. Then called Wally Hyders, it's now called Hyde Street Studios, built around the corner from San Francisco's famed Blackhawk Club, where Miles Davis and others laid down classic jazz tracks. First, I want to play some clips that illustrate what the other players on this all-star session, unofficially christened the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra by Jefferson Airplane co-founder Paul Kantner, or Pero by tape-collecting fanatics, brought to the table. First, let's listen to the beginning of another bonus track from the new Rhino set, a rough early solo demo recording of what many fans consider to be the most beautiful track in David's whole discography, Laughing. I thought I'd met a man who said he knew a man Another Of a shadow. I think we can all agree that this stripped-down demo, engineered by Michael Nemo in Hollywood on May 31, 1968, is a beautiful thing. David wrote the song shortly after he was thrown out of the birds, while he was romancing singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell, and a few months before he hooked up with Stephen Stills and Graham Nash to form the group that would define his career for the next 30 years at least. David recorded more than a dozen demos of Laughing, but what happens 
What happens, my friends, if you give the song to master musicians like Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, and Bill Kreutzmann, and then stack the chorus with harmony singers like Graham Nash and Joni Mitchell? You get this, my friends, the master take of laughing from the album. While we've played this track before on this podcast, I'm just going to play the whole thing again because life is too short to fade out a heavenly performance like this.
Obviously, one of the highlights of that magnificent performance was Jerry Garcia's yearning, aching pedal steel, a notoriously tricky and temperamental instrument to keep in tune and play, which Jerry only recorded with for about a year and a half with any regularity, notably on Graham Nash's Teach Your Children with CSNY, and on his first solo album, Garcia, also recorded at Wally Hyder's by producer Bob Matthews, who sadly passed away recently. But his licks on this track, free of standard Nashville cliches and some of the purest expressions of the distinctive cry in Jerry's playing, were closest to his heart. Quote, The stuff I did on laughing, Jerry once said, I've never heard anything like it but me. It had some sense of where I hoped to go with the steel. We never got to hear where Jerry was going to go with the steel, because he basically stopped playing the instrument after that, except on a few tunes with Dylan a couple of decades later. But at least we have this. And Jerry brought a lot more to the If I Could Only Remember My Name sessions than his pedal steel. This is what David had to say about recording with Jerry on episode four of this podcast, Time is the Final Currency. The thing about Jerry, which you know, is that there was serious magic there. Garcia was a, a, like a consummate musician. He worshipped music. He ate it for breakfast. He rubbed it in his hair. He fucked it. It fucked him. He loved it with his whole entire being. He wanted the music to come out. He knew it was hiding all around him all the time. Wanted to coax it out of the wall. Out of the music, out and play. He was a magical cat that way. He was as, as flawed and normal a human being as everybody else in every other way. Made all the same mistakes. He was a totally human guy. And I seen all of it. But when it came to the music, he was the priest. There's also that climactic vocal crest at the end of laughing, like a collective outbreath, a universal ah, as the dream of the 60s came to an end. Did you hear Joni skimming her exquisite harmony over the top like a stone skipping across a pond? Let me refresh your memory with this little clip recorded by the brilliant engineer behind If I Could Only Remember My Name and many other great records, including CSNY's Deja Vu and the new writers of the Purple Sage's debut, Stephen Barncard. I mean, OMG, people, does anything get more beautiful than that? In our last episode, Phil Lesh described the scene at Wally Hyder's as, quote, jammer heaven, while Stephen Barncard and his assistant Ellen Burke were recording If I Could Only Remember My Name, they were also mixing another of my all-time favorite albums, The Grateful Dead's American Beauty. 
David appeared on numerous projects recorded at Wally Hyder's, including Paul Kantner and Grace Slick's Blows Against the Empire, Sunfighter, and Baron Von Tollbooth and the Chrome Nun. Which is not to say that every note played in the session was amazing. I'm going to play another brief clip, this time of a luminous song played in its entirety on our last episode, Orléans, an old French folk song that David learned from Paul Kantner. The master take on the album is all David, with multi-tracked guitars and vocals, but at some point... Jefferson Airplane's monumental bass player, Jack Cassidy, was asked to record an overdub. I'm a huge Cassidy fan, but in this case, as you'll hear, the addition of his earth-shaking Yggdrasil bass, as Yorma put it, was a little overwhelming. Some of the tracks they never finished were pretty awesome, like this practice session featuring several members of the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra. Phyllis's bass is unmistakable, and that must be Jerry talking at the very end. But David didn't feel the song was complete enough to make the cut as a bonus track on the new edition of the album. I get that, but I love it anyway. So I'm going to play you folks another track that did not make the cut. Heart has words like this. I went walking out last summer, trapped to find a breath of air. I went walking in the mountains. A friend had told me I'd find a good.
should go, it should go just like Carnival, man. It should go just, it should go exactly to that Carnival beat, man. Now let's rejoin David at the old Wally Hyders, now Hyde Street Studios, to talk more about laughing and the rest of this extraordinary album. Now, one of the songs, which we'll talk about in a minute, that many people consider the highlight, if I could only remember my name, was Laughing. And um, that was your advice to, uh, or maybe advice is too strong a word, a kindly, comradely word to George Harrison about his disillusionment with the Maharishi in uh, India. Um, But I came across a statement that I'm sure you forget ever having written, but it's amazing. Uh, And it has very much uh, a feeling to me of what you were talking about in laughing. And it's as close as you ever came to making sort of a spiritual, you know, statement about what you're about. And I'm just going to read it because no one's ever heard this. It's completely forgotten. I get high a lot of different ways, mostly on myself, a lot on music, a lot on making love. When I'm lucky, I'm sailing, playing my guitar, talking to people, drugs, groovy foods, making love, making love, making love as often as possible, which isn't all the time. That's not to say I'm some weird kind of freak who fucks 10 times a day or something. When it happens, it's a groove. I get high on everything I can, man, and I'm trying to get high on everything. Buddha and Christ and Shiva and Krishna and Mohammed and everybody all seem to say that you should get high on the flowers and on yourself and on making love, and you are love, and thou art God, and God grows, and the grass is God, and the grass grows, and everything is it. And if you get into it, the whole universe is yours. Playground, playpen, universe. Any label makes it small, puts fences up. The whole universe is your home if you can get big enough to live there. You just have to get big enough. That was you in 1968. Wow. Isn't that awesome? That was a statement made to a, a, uh, or written uh, for an underground newspaper called the Southern California Oracle. I'll be goddamned, man. I know. It's yeah, you got to ship that one to me. <laughs> Email me that. I, 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 I can't believe I had it that coherent. I know. You had That's it that like coherent. That's like really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, it's truthful that I believe yeah. every word of that. Yep, yep, yep. And so um, you, when you did Laughing, uh, George had, you know, George, the Beatles had gone to India and they'd had this experience, but you were kindly trying to point to the larger universe. I was trying to tell him, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to to, to induce a tiny bit of skepticism, which isn't natural for me. Anytime somebody says they've got God's phone number, I back up three feet. Right. You know, I'm I'm sure I'm about to get hustled. Right. And uh, so I knew that that's not necessarily what was going on, Mm -hmm. and that I might have it wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had so much respect for this guy that I couldn't say it to his face. I couldn't just say, well, that's nice, George, but take it with a grain of salt. Right. Which is what I should have done. But mm. I, I didn't have, I just couldn't do it. It was mm. George, you know, and I like held him in high esteem at the very least. And, uh, and you'd met him when you were a, a bird going over to Swinging yeah. London, right? Yeah. 65. Well, that's when the Indian thing started. 
Right, you right because you <laughs> apparently had a Robbie's, Robbie's album in right? my suitcase. In your Listen, suitcase. it's all so preposterous that I have trouble believing it. I know yeah. George told me that I introduced him to Indian music. Right. I remember him saying it, and I asked Olivia, and she said he told her the same thing. So, mm. but here's what I think. What I think is probably a dozen people probably hipped him to MD music at different times. I might have been the one who gave him the record, mm. but in any case, whoever did it. It took. Indian music f- knocked him out. Uh, he went to India, uh, f- learned all kinds of stuff. Uh, in the course of doing that, he also ran into a guru who he thought had, you know, some glimpses of what was actually going on. And uh, it was the father of TM, actually. It was Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, he said that and, and uh, to me, and I, I said, I wanted to say, well, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Right. I didn't, so I wrote that song yeah. to tell him what I thought in a gentle way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you had also, as a bird, uh, put a big Indian music influence out there because you had blasted uh, Ravi Shankar and John Coltrane's Africa Brass and Impressions to the rest of the band on cassettes on the band bus. Is that not true? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't really have a bus. We had a Winnebago. A Winnebago. Yeah. And in the, it has a, like an aisle right down and with a thing up across the back. And so we put an amp right there at the end of the aisle. Oh, wow. Like a, a big amp and a, uh, a reel-to-reel. Mm. And we played stuff over that. Through the amp and anything while we were cruising along, we had to have our own vehicle, man. Because uh, this was at the beginning of rock and roll touring, and it meant sit-up buses, trailways, greyhounds. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no beds, <laughs> nowhere oh to lie God. down, and also we wanted to smoke pot. Yeah, we were pot smokers, and we liked getting high. Yeah, and with three, four bands on the bus, we just couldn't do that. Yeah, so you know, it made sense. Yeah, yeah. And if you want to hear what that all sounded like coming out of a guitar, eight miles high. How it affected him, you know. Yeah. But see, that's the genius of Roger. Mm-hmm. Roger's a wonderful translator. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful arranger. Mm-hmm. He's got real skills in that mm-hmm. area. And I think he's unquestionably done a better job with Dylan's tunes than anybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He translated Dylan records into records, mm-hmm. Dylan's songs into, you know, 
Bird's records just brilliantly. Which then influenced Dylan back, apparently. Oh, I watched it happen. Yeah. When he came to the studio, when we all met him and everything, I, w- I watched his brain when we sang Tambourine Man, too. He was just cooking. There was smoke coming out of his ears. He wow. went out and got a band the next day. Yeah. He wasn't kidding. He saw that we could translate his music into electric. Yeah. And it entranced him. He was completely into it. And he made that decision right there in front of us. There's no question in my mind. When he got the band, then he had real guys. Yeah, yeah. And he had real players who could really do it. And they killed it. They fucking killed it. If you think about it, it's amazing because that music then went on, the music that the band made, then went on to very much influence like the Grateful Dead, who then came here to this building that we're sitting in to record American Beauty, Mm -hmm. which was their great, you know, kind of return to folk, you know, and acoustic guitars. And after several years of intense psychedelia uh, and Dark Star. Um, you set in with the dead several times. I know that you, you guys played really well when you were here, and it was kind of your gig. How did you feel about playing with the dead on stage? Unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. The dead are a lot deeper pool than you realize mm-hmm. going in. Mm-hmm. They have a chemistry. Those specific guys mm-hmm. have a chemistry. It is deep. It is long-standing. It is extremely complex. It has more variables than I can count. Mm-hmm. It is fearless. And you can't just step into it. Mm-hmm. You can play with them, but you should be as good as the other people who successfully did it. Hornsby. Yeah. Or Branford. Yeah. We're talking about guys at the very, very top of being yeah. able to play. Yeah. They're amongst the best players in the world on right. their instrument. Right, okay. Right, right. They can sit in with the dead, but even they have to learn the chemistry. Right. It doesn't happen right away. Right. I tried to just sit in with them the way you'd sit in with, you know, like a regular band. Yeah. And you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't keep I couldn't. You have to learn how to fit in. Yeah, yeah. You'll be glad to know that Phil, one of the things that Phil said the other day was that he wished he'd gotten the chance to play with you more, actually. He felt like it was promising and could have gone farther than you ever got the chance to do. Um, So that's nice. Well, I'm one of the few people he can play with. Yeah. Uh, Because I understand what he's doing. Yeah. And it's not bass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is... You know, I think my description of the Grateful Dead is actually very peculiar and probably the most accurate one. Mm-hmm. I think they invented something that's very much like electronic Dixieland. Mm-hmm. Now, Dixieland mm-hmm. is four or five melody streams running at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's how you play Dixieland. Mm-hmm. Everybody's playing a melody all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The really good Dixieland bands will crush you with how good that sounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh the Grateful Dead can do it with electrics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they pulled it off a million times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And every time they did, it would just, nobody else could do that. 
Yeah. In uh, Amir Barlev's documentary on the dead, Long Strange Trip, Garcia says, well, he describes what he got from uh, bluegrass and brought into electric music. He said, it's conversational music. The instruments can talk to each other. And that was something I remember, you know, seeing you a million times with CSN or whatever. You were always very interested in the interaction between the musicians. You were always sort of cheerleading the interaction, like standing in front of Neil or whatever, you know, like really making it as interactive as you possibly could. That's how you get it. Yeah. That's how you get it out of them. Yeah. If Neil's crunched over his guitar and he looks up and he and he's three feet away burning into his eyes or my eyes burning. Right. With holy shit, did you just play that? Right. Motherfucker, go! Right. It affects him. Yeah. He can't help it. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah. And it gave us juice. Yeah. To fly with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's part of my job. Yeah. topic slightly when were the first times that you took psychedelics i've had found acid and done it in the birds when it was mm -hmm. and but i don't think it before the birds i don't think i did it before i think mm -hmm. i did it when it was in the birds mm -hmm. and then you know i'm in lax and this wild-eyed hippie comes up to me and says i'm Owsley. <laughs> i said let's step over here yes and he says here and dropped a blue chair on me. Oh, my God. Remember the barrels? Yeah. Before he had the jamming machine? Yes. Right. Dropped a handful of those. After that, I just only did his stuff. Yeah. Because uh, it was strong, but it was clean. He was well <laughs> He was. I was, can I tell you about an experience I had with Owsley in a men's room? <laughs> this is really true. I don't know, man. This is going to get us in trouble. It's, it's not X-rated. Um, he, uh, you know, he was really into health. Uh, he had an all-meat diet. He yeah, was like, crazy. He was pioneering keto, you know, guy, diet guy. A nut. And um, I think he was slightly on the autism spectrum. And in my day job, I'm an autism historian, so I say that from a slightly informed perspective. Um, and he was very particular and exacting about how he did everything, how he made LSD, how he made an espresso, uh, a friend of mine used to work at a hotel where he stayed at. After the first day, he would not let anyone else make his espresso because only he knew exactly how to make his espresso. He was kind of a fanatic that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so in this men's room, uh, we were talking about the all-meat diet, and he ripped off his shirt and he said, feel my muscles. And when Owsley told you to feel his muscles, you did. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. That was one of the most intensely weird experiences of my of my life. He was an intensely weird guy, man. Yeah. But he did make good acid. Yeah. Uh, I remember at, at Monterey, man, he had a uh, 
purple haze. He had a leather jacket on with both pockets were full of purple haze. And he just handed wow. it to everybody. Were you tripping when you did that Kennedy rap at uh, Monterey? No. 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 I, straight ahead. I had tried playing on acid, and mm-hmm. it, it was really interesting. My guitar was about three feet thick, yeah. and it was made out of rubber. <laughs> and, uh, and I was playing a really great tune, and the band was playing this other really great tune. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the two did not come together. Oh, yeah. And it was not a successful endeavor. Yes. Uh, it might be great by yourself, but certainly didn't work for trying to play music with anybody. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I I don't recommend it. I do recommend it for taking your whole mental deck of cards and throwing them up in the air and see how they come down. Right, right, right. It's pretty good for that. Right, right, right. When By the time you guys were recording, if I could only remember my name here, um, I mean, there was a lot going on in this building. Uh, volunteers had been recorded here, Red American Beauty. Eventually, Paul Kantner and Grace Slick would do Sunfighter, which you also sang on, and Baron Von Tolbooth and the Chrome Nun, which you also sang on, and those are, in fact, your nicknames for Paul and Grace, are they not? I think they thought them up, but yeah, I loved those names for them because they were really really righteous names. These are my friends, man. Yeah, I loved both of them. Yeah, I I still love Grace. Yeah, but I, they were, we were really tight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the number of times I I slept at twenty four hundred were probably, you know, a hundred. Yeah. I I I I hung out with them a lot. Bolinas. Yeah. Man, we that was a great house. Yeah. Hang out there a bunch. Oh, that's great.
So after uh, the recording sessions here, for if I could only remember my name, you would go to your boat, the Mayan, in Sausalito, correct? Yeah. 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 And Stephen Barncard, the engineer, told me that he would make a tape of rough mixes mm-hmm. for you to listen to on the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, he said you had a great little uh, t- kind of early model, excellent tape recorder. Something I don't remember, but I, yeah. I could play them. And, yeah. and I could play them in the car on the way home, too. I'm a person that, that needs to listen to things quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, to really suss out what's there. Right. Because... Um, not only is, is it complex trying to listen to 24 things at the same time mm-hmm. and be able to separate them out in your head, mm-hmm. but they affect each other. Mm-hmm. You know, when this note is here by itself, it does one thing when it's here, but with that note and that instrument, it changes this, changes the quality of this note. It actually changes the sound. Right. And you have to know that. Right. I, I loved really listening deeply to stuff to figure out what I was going to do next. Right. And that's me producing myself. That's how I do it. When you look back at If I Could Only Remember My Name, how does it feel to you? What do you think of it? How do you think about it in terms of your own legacy? I think I'm one of the luckiest guys alive. Mm-hmm. I had no plan. I had almost no strength. I was defeated. Damn near destroyed. I had belief in one thing only, and it sustained me. It lit my fire in in spite of the dark, and it was really dark. And uh, all that does is totally confirm my belief in my particular religion, which is music. Mm-hmm. Music is a magic thing, man. Music and poetry, magic, mm-hmm. magic, 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 magic. Mm-hmm. Words delivered in the context of music go right past your sensors into your heart. And uh, if it's good enough. And uh, magic. That's great. One of the things that I did uh, for the liner notes for If I Could Only Remember My Name was to talk to the young musicians who have been collaborating with you on your most recent albums. and some, Really? Yes. Amazing. Yes, this is a surprise for, for you, actually. Yeah, sure. I didn't yeah. know they'd even heard it. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that they had not heard it until, the, until you invited them to play with you, actually. Ah, uh, okay. And then they had profound revelations um, which you'll be hearing about when you read the notes to your album. Great. But, uh, yeah, they were completely blown away by it. Um, let me just read you one. Um, this was said by your son, James Raymond. It's one of the purest examples of music as healing and sanctuary and became my touchstone in deciphering who David was as an artist and a musician. Unhurried, languid, Mournful and celebratory all at once. The melodies and harmonies seem to have always existed. Wow. Amen. Thank you, David. (laughs) 
And thank you all for listening to this historic series of conversations with singer-songwriter David Crosby. I'm grateful to David and grateful to be able to share these conversations and this timelessly beautiful music with all of you. See you all down the road. This podcast was brought to you by Osiris Media. Find previous episodes of Freak Flag Flying and other wonderful podcasts archived at OsirisPod.com. Thank you, David and Jan Crosby. Thank you also, Jack Kurtzman and William Chasen, for hosting this conversation at Hyde Street Studios and for being very cool dudes. Interviews by me, Steve Silberman. Produced by Tom Marshall and Zach Brogan. Art by Mark Dowd. Mastering by Matt Dwyer. And social media by Nick Sejas. Remember, music is love. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.